Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, we're going to talk today about the most embattled of all Seventh-day Adventist beliefs. The idea that you are engaged in a special judgment ministry at the end of time, just before your second coming, in the heavenly sanctuary with your headquarters in the Holy of Holies since the date 1844. Please help us to understand in a way that we can explain to others. And may we understand the importance of this, knowing that we live in a special time just before the end. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with a quotation that I quoted from Philip Yancey, his wonderful book, The Jesus I Never Knew. Have you seen that book, Philip Yancey, The Jesus I Never Knew? Some of you have seen that. Okay. And he, he writes in this. This is an evangelical author. And he writes this. So many times in the course of writing this book, I have felt like one of those disciples peering intently at a blank blue sky. I look for some sign of Jesus, some visual clue. He's talking about the ascension of Christ, right? I look for some sign of Jesus, some visual clue. Like the disciples' eyes, mine ache for a pure glimpse of the one who ascended. Why, I ask again, did he have to leave? I have concluded, in fact, that the ascension represents my greatest struggle of faith. Not whether it happened, but why. It challenges me more than the problem of pain, more than the difficulty of harmonizing science and the Bible, more than belief in the resurrection and other miracles. Now that's a pretty amazing statement because he's written one of the main books on the problem of of pain. Where is God when it hurts? Science and the Bible is a huge issue, as you know right now. Miracles, resurrection. But his greatest struggle is with the ascension of Christ. Imagine that. The reason is because what's Jesus been doing for 2,000 years since he left us? Is he on sabbatical? Is he on vacation? Uh, It reminds me of a song that they used to sing back in the 60s. I won't sing the whole song mercifully, but it goes, um, Why did you leave me here all alone? Okay, I won't sing the rest of the song. But you get the point. Why has Jesus left us here all alone all this time? Well, I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that the Bible in the book of Hebrews and other books and the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, putting it together, tells us what Jesus is doing during this time. He has not been idle. He's been working for the salvation of human beings. And we know where he is right now and what phase of ministry he's involved with because Adventists have uniquely put together the prophetic time prophecies with the sanctuary understanding of the Bible. Now, other groups have not done that. Other Christians, many of them, realize that, yes, Jesus has been ministering in a heavenly temple in the book of Hebrews, but they have never put that with Daniel and Revelation, and they've never figured out the time prophecies the way William Miller and his associates did. Now, you see what happened back there in 1844 was um, pretty much the death of the historicist approach to looking at the time prophecies of Daniel. 
before that, the, the reformers were historicists. A lot of other people were historicists. They didn't know all the details, but they were getting pretty close. And William Miller and his associates refined things and refined them. The problem was, as you know, that they made just one major mistake, and that was the nature of the event in 1844. They said that Jesus was going to come because that's the cleansing referred to in Daniel 8.14. And, and that's just not in the Bible. It never was. But uh, God allowed them to go through this great disappointment. By the way, October 22 was not the great disappointment. October 23 was the great disappointment. October 22 was the great appointment. Okay? I was ordained October 23, uh, right after 9-11. Right <laughs> so hopefully my ministry has not been a great disappointment. In any case, um, the idea that we have now is we know, now that we understand the nature of the event, which is in harmony with Hebrews and Revelation and, and also Daniel, we realize the nature of the event and the timing was right. Now, when the event didn't seem to happen and nobody could see anything happen, they said, ah, the whole system of interpretation is wrong. And most churches today accept preterism. Now, preterism puts everything back in the past. The little horn was Antiochus Epiphanes, and all this stuff is back then. So therefore, we don't have to worry about that. If you go to a, a library and you get a scholarly commentary that is not by an Adventist, it's invariably preterist, that it's all in the past. And that uh, now we don't have, have to worry about the little horn because he's gone. He's, he's gone long ago. Folks, that was a, a view that is very ancient, but it was revived and pushed during the Counter-Reformation. The Reformers knew who the little horn was. They knew who the Antichrist was, the same thing as the little horn. I've been to um, Germany, to Wittenberg, to the museums of Luther there, and I've seen their publications and that kind of thing. And they knew who that power was. But in the big counter-reformation push, they adopted two different views. One is preterism, the idea that it's in the past, not now, of course. And the other is that it's all in the future. We don't know who the Antichrist is yet, the little horn, because he's way off in the future. And that has been adopted by evangelical futurist dispensationalists. The left behind people are all futurists. They think it's all in the future with the rapture and the time of tr the, the trouble time and, and so on that they speak of. This is all futurist dispensationalist. Now you won't find a serious scholarly commentary on Daniel with that approach because it's not a scholarly approach. It won't stand up to even minimal standards of scholarship. So you can't even find that kind of book. It's pop theology, all right? And we saw an example of that recently. Right, with the, the rapture thing, a guy with, with all these complicated things claimed to figure it out and claimed it was biblical. Well, just because you, you take things and, you, and you, you put together your own mishmash from things that are in the Bible doesn't mean it's biblical. You have to follow the biblical principles of the way it's to be understood. Now, Seventh-day Adventists have been historicists. Okay? So it's neither in the past or in the, in the future, but rather we simply take the prophecies of Daniel the way they are. Namely, Daniel is prophesying from his day with a sweep of history going through everything right to the time of the end. Okay? And that is 
historicism. The others have historical approaches too, and they overlap to some extent, but we just take it right on through naturally, and that's a biblical approach. If you just simply read the text without preconceived notions, you're going to be reading it in a historicist way. There are others who want to make it all abstract. We don't know what this means. It has to do with, or, or this has to do with this or that um, conceptual notion or worldview, and, and it becomes very, very abstract. That's idealism. And then there's another approach that I would call hystericism. <laughs> okay, yeah, I think you've seen a bit of that lately. In any case, I, what I like to do is, when I start, I want to make you aware of this going on, but what we're going to do here is ignore all of those. We're not going to say, I'm Seventh-day Adventist, and there are, therefore I'm historicist, therefore I must read the text in this way. No, we're just going to get into the text and let the text guide us how we're going to read it, okay? It happens to be historicism, okay? But just, you don't need to worry about that. By the way, I'll, I'll mention this, that the, the approach of the Counter-Reformation, the Reformers, as I said, identified who that power was that was existing in that time as the little horn that was oppressing God's people and was uh, vaunting itself up by counterfeit worship and all of the rest. They knew who that was. But the Counter-Reformation, by going with futurism that way and preterism that way, you notice that the same power I adopted both preterism and futurism simultaneously, which is a very, very interesting thing because they're mutually exclusive. You can't have one, I mean, if one's right, then the other's wrong and vice versa. They adopted both of them simultaneously because they didn't care which way it went. You can take whichever one you want. It's just the bad guy went that away. <laughs> See? All right. So that's the reason for that. But what we're going to do is just start with um, Daniel. And the first question we need to answer, though, is, uh, well, this is the overall question. Did the pre-Advent judgment really begin in 1844? Is it really true? Or, as many of our detractors say, we have the date wrong, we have the event wrong. Okay, we're going to concentrate on the date, though. We're going to start with this. We need to know when the pre-Advent judgment begins. By the way, the mic, I'm hearing a bit of echo. Can we perhaps lower it just a tiny bit so, so we don't have quite so much echo? Are you hearing the echo? Maybe it's just in my brain. <laughs> that happens once in a while. <laughs> it's a little bouncy, okay. Yeah, so if we back off of it just a little bit. I can raise my voice, it's no problem. Can we back off just a little bit more on the mic? Thanks. Okay, I think that's getting better. Yeah, that's good, thanks. Perfect. All right. Um, do any of you receive mail that says, important, dated material, open immediately? <laughs> I get so much junk mail, a lot of it like that, a lot of credit card offers, that I'm figuring that, you see, I, I heat my house with a wood stove in Michigan through the winter, okay? I'm figuring by the year 2030, at the current trend of increase, I'll be able to heat my house for the whole winter with junk mail alone, all right? Now, <laughs> Do, do you have time for what's important? Do you have time for what's important? No, I don't. I don't have time for what's important. There's too much. Important, dated material. Everything's coming. Everything's important, right? <laughs> if I did with all the important things, I would have to have a day that's at least 60 hours long, not 24. No, I, I can't deal with what's important. I, I can only deal with what's most important. Right? Now, if this, what we're dealing with here today, 1844, is not extremely important, then it's going to be relegated to insignificance and ignored. The greatest danger to
1844 doesn't come from certain individuals who have attacked it, some of whom are friends of mine, and we debate by email and things like that. Okay? Um, the greatest danger doesn't come from that. It comes from neglect. That's what happened with the Israelites. You look at the book of Judges. They failed to pass it on to the next generation. As a result, the next generation went over the precipice, over the cliff. The concubine story at the end of Judges in Judges 19 is not after hundreds of years. It's during the lifetime of the same Phineas, who was the one who, uh, remember, he thrust through Cosby and Zimri when they were going into the tent. He was a contemporary, a younger contemporary of Moses. It was in the first generation after Joshua that that horrible story occurred. So if, if we don't pass on to the next generation, this is going to be lost to the next generation, and we're going to be in deep trouble. So the first thing we need to know is why do we need to know this? Now, 1844, a lot of people treat as a self-standing doctrine. Do you believe in 1844? Oh, yeah, sure. I, I also believe in um, 1944 and 1888. And, you know, so what? Who cares? Right? Well, we need to know why it's important. So here goes. Revelation 14.7, we said yesterday, is important because it says that the hour of his judgment has come. The three angels' messages, and this is part of the first angels' message, are at the end of time, and they're a special warning message, the last warning message for the world before Jesus comes. So when it says the hour of his judgment has come, that means the time, the event has arrived during which this message needs to be proclaimed. That's pretty important, right? Okay, so when is that? How do we know when we can say it has come, not it will come? See? Sometime, we don't know when. But when do we know it has come? Here, We need to know when that is in order to follow and proclaim the three angels' messages. And we could expect that God would tell us that because the end-time judgment is an equivalent of the Day of Atonement. All right? The Day of Atonement was a, was a judgment event, as we said before. And it points forward to this end-time judgment. And God told the Israelites very explicitly very specifically, in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 32, exactly when the Day of Atonement began. It begins on the ninth day of the month at the evening at sunset, and it goes until sunset the following day. Why did they need to know exactly why, uh, when that was? Same verse says, so that because on this day you are to practice self-denial and to keep Sabbath. They were supposed to participate in the event, show their loyalty to God. They had a role to play at this very time, and, and they wouldn't be doing the right thing on that day unless they knew when it was, right? You have to know when an appointment is if you get one of these RSVP cards and it, it leaves off the time of the event. <laughs> That's a problem, right? Okay, so Daniel tells us when the pre-advent judgment begins. We have the end time judgment seen in Daniel 7, 9 to 14. And it says there, using the word judgment, it says the Ancient of Days took his seat and uh, around are lots of angels and the fire flowed from his throne and the judgment was set. There it is, the judgment was set and the books were opened, verse 10. And then it goes on and talks about it. In verse 13, you have the one like the Son of Man 
a human being, one like a human being, comes to the Ancient of Days and receives the kingdom. Okay, this is the pre-advent judgment. And he's coming to the Ancient of Days in heaven. He's not coming to earth. Notice that? All right. So, the end time judgment in Daniel 7, 9 to 14, that's the event we want to identify. That's the same judgment as in Revelation 14, verse 7. The hour of his judgment has come. So, the question is, when does that event come? Well, Daniel 8 tells us that. Because in Daniel 8, the functional equivalent of the judgment is the cleansing of the sanctuary, or literally in Hebrew, the justifying of the sanctuary. Now, you see, in Daniel 7, you have the problem caused by this little horn power and all of this, and then the judgment comes and solves the problem. Daniel 8, problems caused by the little horn power, and then instead of the judgment, you have the justifying of the sanctuary. It's duck, a legal term. And that means, justifying means legal cleansing, right? Isn't that true? Legal cleansing, to be clean, it reminds me of, um, well, I went to the University of California, Berkeley, for my PhD. And have you ever heard of a Berkeley potluck? I guess it's an expression I made up, but a Berkeley potluck? <laughs> well, this, they do a lot of partying in, in Berkeley, and they, there's a lot of drugs in Berkeley. So a Berkeley potluck, uh, everyone brings their own marijuana, and they sit around, and they smoke dope. And, but suppose one kid is sitting in the corner and he's reading a Time magazine. The police come in to bust everybody. And um, the kid, as handcuffs are going on everybody, the kid in the corner says, I'm clean. What does that mean? That's street language. Don't gather from this that I've participated in such a party, of course. <laughs> I'm clean. It's the same as the language used by the woman of Tekoa in 2 Samuel 14, verse 9. The king and his throne will be clean, literally, in Hebrew. It means free from blame. That's what it means. So when the sanctuary is justified, that means free from blame, legally clean. And the Day of Atonement service illustrated that cleansing in ritual terms by purifying the sanctuary. So if Daniel 8.14, the cleansing of the sanctuary, is talking about the same event as the judgment in Daniel 7, and Daniel 8.14 gives us the time, then that time in Daniel 8 will apply to the judgment. Do you get it? Right? If A equals B, and you learn something about B, that's going to tell you about A also. Right? Okay. There's logic to all of this. So then, what we need to know is the sanctuary begins to be justified after 2,300 literally evenings, mornings, that is days. Now, the evening and the morning was day one, right? So an evening plus a morning makes one day. God uses an unusual expression of time here for a symbolic time, as elsewhere in the book of Daniel, unusual terminology. But we have 2,300 days. There are some uh, scholars, particularly preterists, who want to put everything in the past. They want to get the 2300 down as close as they can to the length of time that Antiochus Epiphanes uh, persecuted the Jews. So they say it's 2300 morning and evening sacrifices. So, so that means you have to split the numbers. It's 1150 days during which 
2,300 sacrifices occurred morning and evening. Several problems with that. Number one, the sacrifices were morning and evening, but this says evening morning, so therefore that doesn't apply. Right? There was an evening to morning event at the sanctuary. That was the lamps, but it was continuously evening until morning. You can't split it up. Furthermore, when um, Moses said that he went up to the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, it didn't mean that you split it into 20, does it? Right? It was a way of expression to say the whole thing. So these are 2,300 full days. What I'm going to do here in the next two slides is the simplest explanation of how to get to 1844 that I've ever seen. If you've ever seen a more simple one, please bring it to my attention. You see, the problem with, with Adventists um, teaching this to other people is they don't understand it. A lot of pastors don't understand it. And um, therefore, when you don't understand something that's too complicated, then it gets neglected, right? Particularly if you don't think it's that important. We'll do a lot of other complicated things, you know, setting up a VCR, installing Windows or uh, com computer program, that is, and things like that. We'll rebuilding an engine. We do very complicated stuff. But when it comes to the Bible, oh, that's too heavy, and we give up right away. Well, it's, it's really not that, that difficult. This is going to be extremely simple. And, and what I've tried to do here is, rather than doing what a lot of evangelism does, and that is take you through Daniel 2, Daniel 7, 8, 9, and by the time you get there, you're just saying, whoa, with all that massive detail, just uh, I'll say yes to that one of the fundamental beliefs so I can be baptized, right? <laughs> just have mercy, lay off me. <laughs> and so it's too complicated. But here is just from within Daniel 8 itself. And then pointing to Daniel 9, we have to go into that. Uh, we're going to get it. Step number one. 2,300 days are much longer than literal days. In Daniel 1, or Daniel, Daniel uh, yeah, this is step one. In Daniel Eight, you have 2,300 days, but they cover the period of the vision. Because if you look at the previous verse, verse 13, it says, until when is the vision? And that Hebrew word for vision is the same as the, as the word back in the first verses of that chapter. The vision starts with the ram. Now, you don't have to guess what the ram represents because verse 20 explicitly tells you Medo-Persia, the kings of Media and Persia. And then it goes into the goat, which strikes the ram, and verse 21 explicitly tells you no opportunity for guesswork or getting around it. It's Grisha, and the first king is represented by the great horn on that goat. Okay, so nobody can dispute that. It's explicit. With that information alone, the 2,300 cannot be literal days because many of the kings during the time of Medo-Persia and also during Greece lasted a lot longer than six and one-third literal years, which is what 2,300 literal days would be. You get it? In other words, you got 2,300 days, but it covers this huge period of many centuries, right? So it cannot possibly be literal days, which would only be six and one-third literal years. 
It's not possible. It's absurd. We have to look for another meaning for the 2,300, right? Okay, is that clear to everybody? We're building, so you have to get each point. Step two, Daniel 9 explains Daniel 8. Okay, so at the end of Daniel 8, you haven't gotten to the explanation of the vision in terms of the length of time because you don't have the beginning point. Without the beginning point, you can't know the end. It's just until 2300. This is floating around here somewhere. We need to know what the units are. We need to know what it begins. And Daniel is very perplexed. It's, he's really stressed out at the end of Daniel 8. And then in the next chapter, he's praying and confessing and and, and, and the angel Gabriel comes and says to him that he's been sent, the angel Gabriel has been sent, to give him understanding of the vision. Now, that word for vision is the same word that's used back in Daniel 8, not for the whole thing, but for the part of the vision that has to do with the time period of 2300. There is no vision in chapter 9. So when Gabriel says, I'm going to explain the vision, it's got to be the vision of Daniel 8. All right. So, Daniel 9 is an explanation, an additional explanation, because there was already a partial explanation right in Daniel 8. But Daniel 9 is going to come to explain more, particularly about the time period. Step 3, 70 weeks, Daniel 9, 24 to 27. These 70 weeks begin in 457 B.C. Okay, so that takes us past the prayer of Daniel. Now we get into the explanation by the angel Gabriel. And, chap and verse 24 of chapter 9 says that 70 weeks are determined or cut off for or upon your people. All right. 70 weeks. And when is that? All right. 70 weeks of years. We'll get into more detail later. But the time period starts in verse 25 of Daniel 9. You can look it up if you want, but um, I'm not opening my Bible because I'm concentrating on speaking to you and looking, looking you in the eye. It's like the Battle of Bunker Hill. Don't shoot till you see the whites of their eyes, right? <laughs> so Daniel 9.25 says, From the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So seven... 69 total weeks of years. Okay, we're going to get to what the weeks represent. So when did that begin? When is it true that, as Daniel 9.25 says, the going forth of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? That's the crucial question. If we know that, we can figure out the end of the 70 weeks. Right? So the answer is, by looking in the book of Ezra. You look elsewhere in the Bible. In the book of Ezra, there are three decrees concerning God's people to restore them from the Babylonian captivity. The first one was by Cyrus, who defeated the Babylonians. That decree allowed the Jewish people to return home and provided for them to rebuild the temple. The second decree was that of a subsequent ruler, Darius. And Darius 
also provided for the temple because it hadn't been completed under the reign of Cyrus. Neither one of those two, those first two decrees, said anything at all about the city of Jerusalem. It was only the people and the temple. Now, the concerns of Daniel in his prayer were not only the people and the temple, but also the city of Jerusalem. And in Daniel 9.25, it says, the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Okay. The first decree of a Persian king to restore Jerusalem is in Ezra chapter 7. This is the Persian king or emperor he was, Artaxerxes I. And it says there that in the seventh year of his reign, his decree went forth, and Ezra took that with him to put that into effect in Palestine because there were Jewish people already there. And the decree provided for Ezra to set up a civil government system, including judges, to judge according to the law of his God. And this is the first mention of Jerusalem. Now, this is very significant because they were given once again civil control of the city. This was restoration of Jerusalem to them. As a result of that, they were able to start rebuilding the walls, okay? which they did. They started, but then they were broken down by the enemies until later, 444 B.C., Nehemiah completed the walls. Now, the crucial thing is that in Ezra 7, the year in which the decree went forth to restore Jerusalem in this way to the Jewish people is dated to the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes I. Now, we know exactly when that year was because ever since the reign of Nabopolassar, the father of Nebuchadnezzar, which is earlier. Since that time, historians have been able to correlate the dates of the reigns of Mesopotamian kings, Babylonians and Persians, with uh, our calendar to the day because they've been able to correlate those reinal dates with solar eclipses. Okay? There was an eclipse and then everything lines up exactly because astronomers can tell exactly what date that was. So we know to the day, for example, when Nebuchadnezzar, his first official year of reign began. All right, that was in 605, I think it was April 20. All right, so we know when the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes was. And you look in any history book of Mesopotamia, such as History of the Ancient Near East by Amelie, that's A-M-E-L-I-E, Kurt, K-U-H-R-T, that's her last name, Amelie Kurt, K-U-H-R-T. It's a two-volume set, uh, a very recent uh, definitive work or the Cambridge Ancient History. You look in one of these, these are not Adventist works, but you look there, it's just history. And you find that this king, Artaxerxes I, his seventh year of reign, overlapped ours because they didn't begin their years when we did. They went from spring to spring and that kind of thing. And, and it overlapped our years from 458 B.C. to 457. 
and the decree went into effect in 457. That's our starting point. That's very important. Okay. So all you really need to remember is decree of Artaxerxes the first, 457 BC, Ezra seven, seventh year. Okay. I gave you a little more detail. Now, the seventy weeks are weeks of years because the seventy weeks go from the time of Artaxerxes until the coming of the Messiah. And you can see what needs to happen within those, those 70 weeks. You've got the restoration of Jerusalem. You've got various other things happening. And it, it couldn't all take place just in 490 literal days, which is just a bit over one year. Right? Too much going on. In fact, the Scholars recognize this. If you look in the uh, lexicon, it's, it's one of the state-of-the-art lexicons by Köhler and Baumgartner. It's called a, the Hebrew and Aramaic Lexicon of the Old Testament. And you look up the word for week that shows up in Daniel 9.24, and they give as one of the meanings of week, week of years. For these, and they cite these passages in Daniel. In other words, outside scholars recognize that the week here in Daniel 9 is week of years. It doesn't make sense for it to be a week of literal days. That's just a meaning of Hebrew. The Hebrew word week is a, is a seven, a unit of seven, which can be either days or it can be years. Here it's years because of the context. All right, now, going on. The 490 years are the first segment of the 2300 days. Now, what we're doing now is we've, we've found some answers in Daniel uh, 9, and now what we're doing is we're going back and see what we can learn about the 2300. Notice that in Daniel 9.24, it says that the 490 years are cut off. Cut off. And that term is generally translated in most English translations by determined or something like that. The basic meaning of the word, however, we get from rabbinic writings because the word doesn't show up anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. The word is hatak. And in rabbinic writings, we find that the word basically means to cut off a segment from a longer segment. That's the basic meaning of the word. Extended meanings have to do with determining or decreeing the way we do. We talk about cutting a deal, you know, that kind of stuff, all right? But those are extended meanings. So the basic meaning, it's cut off. The 490 years are the first part. This makes sense for two other reasons. Number one is because Daniel was concerned about the first part of the long period of 2300 days, wasn't he, when he prayed? What's going to happen to my people, the temple, and the city of Jerusalem? When are they going to be fully restored from the Babylonian captivity? That was his concern. Gabriel came to answer that concern. And the next thing that supports that is the fact that in Daniel 9, 27, it refers to abominations are decreed after the period of the 70 weeks. So what that does is it tells you that after these 70 weeks, there's all these bad kinds of abominations, which keys you back to the language that's used in Daniel 8 of the climactic bad stuff going on during the time of the little horn. 
So you can see that this really has to be the 490 years as the first segment of the 2300, which is very important because that means that now we have a beginning point for the 2300. You see how that works? All right. The 2300 day, days are 2300 years beginning in 457. If the 70 weeks are cut off from the first segment of the longer period, then the beginning point is the same. And we know that if the 70 weeks are 70 weeks of years, and they're part of the 2300, the 2300 must also be years, right? They can't be a smaller unit because, well, put it this way, this is a kind of a dogmatic way to put it, but um, huh, what happens if a Chihuahua tries to give birth to a Great Dane? <laughs> you can't get something bigger out of something smaller, all right? So as a result, we've got to have um, years for the 2300. And now we're already to step seven. This is it. We just start with 457, and we count, and what we get is 1843. You know why? 1843. The Millerites discovered this same problem, and that's why they had the earlier disappointment because they hadn't stopped to take into account the fact that there was no zero year. There was no zero year. You didn't have one BC, year zero, one AD. You had one BC, one AD. Now, your calculator, if you get 1844 uh, and you subtract, you use your calculator, your calculator has a zero in there, see? Well, the way to do it would be take 2,300, subtract 457. Your calculator is going to give you 1843. But you have to add one because since there was no zero year, the period goes one year longer than it would otherwise. And that's why the end is in 1844. You have to do the same thing when you're calculating the 70 weeks of years, which begin in 457, 490 years crossing the zero year uh, takes you to AD 27, not 26, okay? So there you have seven steps to 1844. All you've really got to do is just read the biblical text carefully and compare, and all the answers are right there in Daniel 8 and 9, okay? Does that make sense? Now, what we're going to do to, to refine, we said objections to 1844, but I wanted to first I think we've already answered a lot of objections because if you show how things grow, grow right out of the text, then it's solid, it makes sense. But now we're going to show specific debated points along the way. Not all of them, but some of them. Some of the key ones, which I've gotten from a, a friend of mine who's probably the world's expert in attacking this Adventist doctrine, a good friend of mine. Um, all right. Objection. The day-year principle is invalid. Now, if a day doesn't represent a year, then we don't have 2,300 days, and therefore we don't have 1844, right? Okay, let's see. If the 2,300 are literal 24-hour days, there are only 6.3 years, but the vision goes from Medo-Persia to the time of the end. We already said that, didn't we? We've already really answered this one. Why would Daniel... But we didn't say this. Why would Daniel be so upset 
at the beginning of Daniel 9. If there were only 6.3 literal years that he was going to have to wait, right? You notice what he's doing at the beginning of Daniel 9, and it gives us the date. The date is at, in, in the reign of Darius the Mede, right? Isn't that what verse 1 says? Anyone following along? Verse 1 of Daniel 9 says, in the first year of Darius the Mede, he only reigned one year, by the way, and, um, and then he died. Isn't that what it says? Darius the Mede, and this is right at the very beginning of the reign of Medo-Persia, the next empire. In the succession of kingdoms, you had the Babylonians, the head of gold, then you have Medo-Persia, breast and arms of silver, chest and arms of silver, and that's the next kingdom. So we're already gone to the next kingdom. Why is that a problem for Daniel? Because in Jeremiah, it was predicted in Jeremiah 25 that there would be 70 years, 70 literal years that would be given to the Babylonian kingdom in which to oppress God's people, and then they would go free. So here Daniel has already gotten to the next power. His people are not free. And in the preceding chapter, he's received a very disturbing vision, obviously having to do with his people, in which there's 2,300, whatever that is, and he sees a lot of stuff going on. Now, if Daniel had believed that it was 6.3 literal years, would he have been upset? Oh, we can wait that long. If I told you there's going to be 6.3 years until we have peace in the Middle East, is that good news or bad news? That's incredible news. Yeah. So, um, it doesn't make sense, does it? Daniel believed that the 2,300 was much longer than literal days. And that's why he was upset. And he's praying, Lord, what's going to happen to my people? In other words, have you called off the whole plan of restoration because of the wickedness of my people? So he's confessing, identifying himself with them, by the way, rather than saying, oh, those terrible hypocrites, those, those wicked pagan people, those... No, he says, we have done wickedly, we have sinned, right? Identifying with, him, with his people. And that, I think is something that we could emulate too, right? And, and he's praying a covenant prayer. God said back in Leviticus 26, the covenant blessings and curses, which read like a prophecy because everything bad happened. And it says there around verse 40 or so in Leviticus 26, it says that if the people who are taken into exile because of all of their sins, there will turn back to God and repent and pray, God will hear them, and he will restore and give them back their land. And so Daniel is praying that prayer in Leviticus. And he's praying a covenant prayer. He refers to the covenant. And he refers to all the bad things that have happened, the curses, and the reason for them. But Daniel is very upset because now he has more information in the previous chapter, chapter 8, the 2300, and he thinks maybe God has called the whole thing off. All right, so it's got to be, it's got to be longer than 2,300 literal uh, days. Days can represent years in the Bible in symbolism in some passages, although it's most important that we look within the context of Daniel itself, rather than doing as some historicists have done and saying, 
aha, proof text, day-year principle, apply day-year principle. No, you realize that this is possible, and so you look in the context to see on a case-by-case -case basis if the context indicates that this should be the case. And here, here in Daniel, it has to be, because the short period doesn't work. He, the Hebrew term days, plural of the Hebrew word yom, by itself can mean a year in some passages. That's just the way they would say a year is days, that expression. You have unusual terms for symbolic times in the book of Daniel. Rather than just say uh, three and a half years in Daniel 7, it says a time, times, and half a time, right? That's a very unusual way to talk about, about time. Even givening, given their expressions that they use, this is idan, idanin, uplag, idan in Aramaic. Okay, so the terminology is unusual, which keys us into the fact that, aha, this is not just dealing with ordinary time, this is symbolic time. The 70 weeks are also 70 sabbatical year cycles. Notice that in Daniel 9, it says that there are going to be seven weeks of years and then 69 weeks of years. What, what is seven weeks of years? Where do you find that? You find that back in Leviticus 25. That is a jubilee period, right? Seven Sabbaths of years after which you have the jubilee release. Here it's not just a jubilee of um, release for the Israelite farmer in the 50th year. It's a release for all of the people after 70 times seven. In fact, if you divide the, that up, you've got 70 weeks, that gives you 10 jubilee periods of 49 years each, ending with some kind of freedom, at least from sin and so on. So here it's for the whole nation. This is an extended jubilee period. And there in Leviticus 25, we find that Sabbaths of years could, would refer to a week of years, and this reinforces the idea that, in fact, this, this needs to be weeks of years here in Daniel 9. We also have historical confirmation that it's true that it had to be weeks of years, because you just plug in year, and you <laughs> plug in 457, and you see if it works. When do you come to? Well, you come to 27 AD. What happens then? Luke 3 verse 1 tells us explicitly that in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Jesus was baptized. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. That anointing makes him Mashiach, the anointed one, which is the term that Daniel says in Daniel 9. After so many, seven weeks and 62 weeks, that is, after 69 weeks of years, at the beginning of the last week of years, the Messiah is anointed, that is, begins his ministry. Jesus was anointed as the Holy, by the Holy Spirit exactly at that point. When is that? Luke 3, verse 1. 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Just go to Wikipedia, look up. You know, it's common knowledge. We know exactly when he, he reigned, when his uh, predecessor, Augustus, died. And you have to realize that Jewish reckoning took the first part of the year of his reign before the new year as year one. Right? It's just like when you get a parking ticket 
and you, you go a little bit over into the next hour, so you pay for the whole hour, right? That's inclusive reckoning. That's so they can get more money. Uh, but the Jews did inclusive reckoning. So if you count year one, the first month or two between the death of Augustus and the, and the new year, and then you count that way, you get to 27 uh, AD is when that happens. So Luke 3, 1 is correlating with classical history, not some minor person, but the great emperor of Rome, to tell us that Jesus exactly kept his appointment, came when Daniel said he would come 500 years earlier. That's pretty impressive. That, in fact, is the most specific prophecy of Christ's coming in the whole Old Testament. It tells us exactly the year when the Messiah would come. It's remarkable. It's evidence of the inspiration of Scripture and the fulfillment of prophecy and the identification of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. To the extent that it's very threatening to some people. Uh, of course, Jewish people are threatened by that because it identifies Jesus as the Messiah. And other people are threatened by it for, for different reasons. If you can get that far, then you can also identify when the little horn comes. And of course, other groups feel threatened by that. Others are ecumenical, so they don't want to offend anybody. They want to be politically correct. So the only ones left saying this are us. Right? We're, we're pretty much it. The Jehovah's Witnesses are historicists in a sort of a way, but they, they got off on their dates and so on. They didn't follow scriptures Exactly, but we've tried to be very careful, and the early Adventists were very careful in that regard. Uh, we're going to take some questions at the end. Did you want to ask a clarification? Okay. Jesus um, became the Messiah at his baptism. The word for Messiah is simply from the Hebrew word Mashiach, Mashiach, on the end there. And that's used in Daniel, until Messiah the Prince. Daniel 9, 25, I believe, and then verse 26 uh, also uses the word Messiah. I've got my Bible, but I won't look it up right now. Um, but it's there. It uses that exact word, and that word in Hebrew means anointed one. You have other anointed ones in the Hebrew Bible. A king, or the high priest, uh, or even, yeah, particularly the high priest, could be an anointed one. Here we have not just a Messiah, we have the Messiah. And the one who is the Messiah is both king and priest. That's significant, by the way, because in the ancient Near East, king plus priest equals God. The Pharaoh was a God king, he was a priest king. He would mediate with the gods. The Hittite emperors were, there's a bit of a debate over it, but they function as god kings. And they were priests performing rituals, interceding, and so on for their, for their people, and they were kings. That's why God didn't allow the ancient Israelite kings to function as priests. And you remember what happened to Uzziah when he tried to offer incense. He was smitten with so-called leprosy. Okay, let's go on. The 490 years are the first segment of the 2,300 days. The 70 weeks are cut off, and as we said, if the 70 weeks are years, the 2,300 must be two. So we've really already answered that objection. Now here's another objection that's very interesting. And um, that is that in Isaiah 44 verse 28, have a look at your translation, see what it says. 
In Isaiah 44, verse 28, most English translations give the impression that it is Cyrus who's saying that Jerusalem must be rebuilt. If that is true, then we have to go from the decree of Cyrus, which was about, uh, what would that be? Uh, Cyrus conquered Jerusalem, or rather he conquered um, Babylon in the year, what year are we talking about there? 539 BC. So this is between 539, 536, along in there, that the decree of Cyrus would be. If we start from that beginning point, we don't end up in 1844. See the problem? Okay. However, the answer is, the correct translation is in the NRSV, New Revised Standard Version, and in this, in this version, and who, who, if you look in the Hebrew syntax, this is correct, it's referring to God, not Cyrus. And who says of Jerusalem, it shall be rebuilt? This is a decree of God. And in Ezra 6.14, it's a decree of God that is carried out through the Persian kings that culminating in Artaxerxes that restores uh, Jerusalem. All right, so that's a pretty easy one to answer. The decree of Artaxerxes in Ezra 7 included concern for the city of Jerusalem itself. Another objection. The decree of Artaxerxes I did not call for rebuilding. The answer is to restore a city, this is the Hebrew word that's usually translated to rebuild, to restore a city means, in Hebrew, to restore its political ownership. This is a particular form, if you want to know the specifics, it's the hithil form of the root shuv, which is translated to restore, but what, what does it mean to restore a city? I did a search in my Accordance Bible software program for the uses of the hithil of shuv, where a city is the direct object of the verb. And I found these passages like this, where it's very clear in those contexts that it's the restoration to political ownership. So it doesn't mean that we have to start our counting of the 2,300 from 444 BC when Nehemiah finished rebuilding the walls, because the point is restoration of ownership to the civil control of the Jews in the seventh year of Artaxerxes I, when he was given the power to carry out the law and have magistrates. All right. And on the basis of that, they, they actually did start rebuilding. That gave them that power. Okay, so I've already said that. And let's go to the next objection. Ezra 7 may speak of another Artaxerxes. However, Nehemiah 13, verse 6, refers to the 32nd year of this Artaxerxes. And that rules out Artaxerxes 3 and 4 because they didn't rule that long. So we're left with Artaxerxes 1 and 2, but the historical context of Artaxerxes I fits the circumstances the best, as pointed out by the same lady I told you about, Emily Kurt, the um, history of ancient Mesopotamia. All right? And she identifies some of the events going on in the Persian Empire with the reason why the Persians would want tight control with the Jews in Palestine in order to counter a threat from Egypt. Another objection. Antiochus, in fact, this is the last objection. Um, Antiochus IV Epiphanes fulfilled the little horn symbol. Now, Antiochus was ruler number eight out of 20 Seleucid kings. The Seleucids were from one branch 
of the breakup of Alexander's empire. Alexander, of course, you know, went from Macedonia and, and Greece, and he went across and he, he knocked out the Persian Empire with some major punches at battles like Issus, Arbila, and Granicus. He took captive the, um, the Persian king, Darius III. He took over the Persian Empire, and he kept his armies going until they reached the Indus uh, River Valley. Uh, really amazing. After that point, he wanted to make Babylon his capital in the east and Alexandria his capital in the west, but he died. We don't know if what he died from, whether it was battle wounds or malaria or drunkenness or what exactly he died from. He died at the age of 33, right? very, very young. And um, so then his empire split up. There were some generals that fought among each other, and there were four major branches of his empire. There was Attalid Pergamon, um, Antingadin Macedonia, Seleucid Syria, and Ptolemaic Egypt. Now, this Seleucid Syrian branch was the biggest, and it went from Syria all the way east, the whole eastern part, and that included Palestine for some of the time. Egypt and Palestine fought, king of the north, king of the south. Okay, so Antiochus was one ruler of that Greek kingdom of the Seleucids. He was only one out of 20 rulers. He was ultimately unsuccessful. Now, what we find in Daniel is that the little horn is remarkably successful. It expands toward the south and the east and the glorious land, which is Palestine, expands its empire exceedingly. And the language used is even heightened above what we find in the description of Alexander the Great. So this guy has got to be greater than Alexander the Great. Antiochus was definitely not that. Oh, yes, he wanted to be. All of them did. They all wanted to be like Alexander the Great. But what he uh, did was he went down. He wanted to expand his empire towards Egypt. And so he marched his army down there, and he was making good progress. He was defeating the Egyptians. and He was down there um, on the shore close to Alexandria by the beach there. And he was met by one lone Roman. His name was Popilius Linnaeus. And this Roman was um, bringing a message from the Senate of Rome. They didn't have emperors yet. This was the Senate, okay? And he comes up to Antiochus. Now, Antiochus was there, backed up by thousands of his army, including elephants. That's, that's the tanks in those days, right? Elephants. Huge army behind him. This one Roman comes to, to Antiochus and says to him, Rome says, go home. And Antiochus said, I'll think about it. He didn't want to be embarrassed in front of all of his troops, right? And the Roman took a stick, or his staff, I guess it was, and he drew a circle around Antiochus in the sand, and he said, think about it here. And Antiochus went home. Now, are you talking about the mighty little horn here? What a joke. Do you know why he went home on the basis of what that one Roman said? Because Antiochus IV, his father was Antiochus III, who was called the Great, who tried to expand his empire up toward the north into Turkey, and he was whipped at two major battles. The second of them was Battle of Magnesia. And he would have liked to have amnesia about the Battle of that Magnesia, uh, milk of amnesia. Um, he was whipped so badly that he had to pay a huge crippling tribute to Rome and he had to give up his son as hostage to Rome, and his son spent his growing up years in Rome. And guess who that was? Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He grew up 
close hand, seeing the might of Rome. He grew up in Rome for, for quite a few of his growing up years. Antiochus III, the Great, died trying to ransack one of his own temples to get money to pay the tribute to Rome. So when a Roman comes and says, Rome says, go home, he knows what that means. And he is still being subject. They've not, never gotten out from underneath the Roman power. And so he just obeys. He goes and probably to try to raise money for um, paying his tribute to Rome, he tries to ransack the temple in Jerusalem. And that ends badly because he tries to make it a Hellenistic city and stop them from, uh, pass from their festivals and circumcising their baby boys. And, and he, he has finally a, a pig set up at the altar and pagan standards set up. He does a lot of bad stuff. The Jews revolt, and they wipe out, they whip his Maccabean, I mean, they, the Maccabees whip his, Assyrian, his Syrian army and send him packing back home. He loses control of Palestine. This is not someone who is increasing his realm. His realm is smaller when he dies than when he, when he inherited it. No way could this be the little horn. This guy's a certified card-carrying loser. Now, did he persecute the Jews and do some things a little horn does? Yes. Does that make him the little horn? No. Case in point. I'm going to describe to you, this is a historical trivia question, I'm going to describe to you a European power, and I want you to tell me who this individual was. Okay, he was very aggressive military um, leader, and his armies were extraordinarily successful in taking a large part of Europe. Um, then finally he went into Russia, but his troops were defeated, and to a large extent by the Russian winter, he had to retreat and ultimately was defeated. Who was I just describing? Who? Oh, I'm, I'm hearing two different answers. Hitler and Napoleon. It's true of both of them. Now, was Hitler the same as Napoleon? No, because there were also differences, major differences. But there were some things in common. That doesn't make one into the other, does it? I mean, it reminds me of when my um, family, when I was growing up, we used to play 20 questions. Anybody play 20 questions? Good Sabbath game for kids in Nebraska where it was snowing. And um, we, my brother was a little guy, and he came up with one that we couldn't answer. We were quite surprised. How did he do that? And um, then we gave up. What is it, Calvin? Calvin said, Abraham Lincoln. Well, he had a beard. His name is Abraham. He's got to be in the Bible, right? <laughs> no, but just because it looks like there are some similarities doesn't mean that. This is a case of what we call anachronism. Anachronism is when you misplace something into a different place in history. I'll give you another whimsical example just to drive the point home. Um, do, do you know why King Tut and Cleopatra broke up? Both Egyptian monarchs, right? You know why they broke up? Well, he says, oh, Cleo, Cleo, and she says, oh, Tut, Tut. <laughs> Look, they lived a thousand years apart, over a thousand years apart, okay? But that's anachronism. And to call the little horn Antiochus, it can't be because the power that takes over is not just one Greek power, but it's a power that supersedes all of the preceding empire, which is Rome, takes over from all the Greek powers. It has to be Rome. You find that at the end of Daniel 8. 
at the latter end of their rule, that is the rule of the Greek kings, this other power would arise. And sure enough, it arose and it was overlapping and taking over. And one by one, they fell before the onslaught of Rome. Rome did expand toward the south first, attacking Carthage, defeating Carthage in the Punic Wars, then toward the, the uh, east and toward the glorious land, Pompey took over Palestine in 63 AD. Everything fits. It's got to be Rome. All roads lead to Rome. Right? Okay. And there you have it. It was Rome that superseded the Greek kingdoms. No, uh, one, one more ob objection, but this is a real brief one. No historical sources date the death of Christ to 31 AD. See, in the, in the time chart, if you take 457 to 1844, 457 to 34, A.D. with, you've seen the chart, and, and beginning in 27, the baptism going to the stoning of Stephen, which was crucial because that's when uh, he saw Jesus standing up, standing up for judgment at the end of the special time given to that people. And then, um, although God still has a special place in his heart for them, in the middle of that time, the Messiah would be cut off. In the midst of that last week, cut off. That term cut off, by the way, refers to, this, this is Daniel 8.26. The term cut off is the same one used in the books of Moses as a judicial penalty for someone who did something really bad, and the divine terminal penalty is cut off, meaning that that person would lose an afterlife, such as a line of descendants. The Messiah, has that happened to him? Wow, that's not just a death, that's a death beyond death. A death where if you lose your line of descendants, you won't even be history because there'll be nobody to remember your name. And Jesus didn't just die the first death, he died the equivalent of the second death. But he comes forth from it, and according to Isaiah 53, verse 10, he will see his posterity. Amazing. He comes forth from that death, from which there is no return, because he did it for others. He didn't sin himself. And that date, if it's between 27 and 34, it's got to be right about 3180, but we don't have any correlation like Luke 3 verse 1 to tell us that's really the date of the crucifixion. It's kind of surprising, the most important event in human history, unmarked in the calendars of human beings. And yet, it doesn't matter because, whoop, it doesn't matter because, here, the answer is we don't need this because we have confirmation that Christ began his ministry in 27, and that hooks in the 490 years to the 2300. It just hooks that in, and we don't need the, thir the 31. We don't have to verify each one independently. It's not a problem. We know that Pilate was the procurator during that time. It, historical events show that it was very close right in there. We can't prove it astronomically, as some people have tried to do, but it doesn't matter because we can nail down 27 AD on the basis of Luke 3, verse 1. And that's it. Um, I've just put a note here for information on books and a DVD on the sanctuary. Uh, see this. I'll mention very briefly what some of the things are that I've written that might be relevant. The thing that's most relevant to this presentation today is my book, Who's Afraid of the Judgment?, published by Pacific Press. It was about to go out of print, but I contacted them and explained that we really do need to have this still. And this goes through and explains in just a few pages. It has 1844 in 10 steps. I've given it to you even simpler in seven steps. But it explains the objections, has a lot more detail. It also talks about um, the meaning of the end time judgment and answers to the objections that 
um, this judge, judgment message of Adventists wipes out our gospel assurance. You know, answering Dale Ratzlaff and that whole group. Okay, so that is going to remain in print, Pacific Press. Um, and uh, here is, yeah, I've, you've seen my book, Altar Call, which is about the sanctuary from Exodus through Revelation, tracing through, and it also deals a little bit with this topic here that we've been doing today, not as much as the, the other book, but it deals with the meaning of the sacrifices, and particularly the um, understanding the plan of salvation, righteousness by faith, and the great controversy through the sanctuary. And this is a uh, DVD that covers presentations covering the first part of that book, four 50-minute presentations, including diagrams and pictures of the sanctuary and so on. Um, this is In the Shadow of the Shekinah. It was the companion book to the recent quarterly on the Book of Numbers. And what it does is concentrates on what we can learn in our journey with God from the journey of the ancient Israelites with God, particularly in the Book of Numbers, during their wilderness journey, the different dynamics that happen, what we can learn. Because history is repeating itself. We have issues of um, loyalty and leadership and worship and all kinds of things. We can learn a great deal from, from that. Okay, I also deal with um, questions of the fact that God didn't engage in social engineering with the Israelites. The patriarchal culture was not something God commanded. He was using that. That was the ground that he tilled to accomplish his purpose. We don't have to have a patriarchal culture today. That's not part of what he mandates. He gives his principles within the context of culture, and then we apply those. This book is the biggest one here. Um, I've written some others, but they're more hardcore scholarly things, which were, would be um, merciful to spare you. But this one is Leviticus and Numbers, the NIV Application Commentary series. This one is available in just about any Christian bookstore or Amazon or whatever. But if the link there gives links to the different publishers, I couldn't bring these to sell them because they're published by Zondervan and Pacific Press and Review and Herald and so on. But this one has detailed verse-by-verse -verse commentary on Leviticus and Numbers and also then applies to modern day. It gets very, very close to the Adventist position. My father couldn't believe what they let me get away with, like the idea that uh, Azazel's goat, the so-called scapegoat, doesn't represent Christ, as most Christians believe, but Satan. They just didn't bat an eyelash about that. And I got very close, but of course couldn't get into the time frame elements like we're talking about here today. Um, another major thing that this does that would be a whole other series for me to speak, but I can't do that, is how do you apply biblical laws to modern life? How do you know what applies and what doesn't? Mixtures of garments, um, various things about uh, some, some of the detail laws uh, about sexuality, about uh, civil laws, and all these different kind of things. Some of these laws look really strange to us. How do we know what applies or how to apply them? And I explain that in quite a bit of detail there. I think that would be helpful and practical. Um, and I have a one-sentence rule of thumb there that, that I develop and then illustrate, and that is you apply today, you apply a law to the extent that its principle applies, to the extent that its principle applies. Okay, so you gotta look for the original principle. Unless the New Testament removes the reason for its application. So, for example, if you take, um, if you take lever at marriage, um, Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10, right? Two brothers dwelling on an undivided estate, and one 
brother dies, leaving a wife childless. His brother has to marry the widow to raise up children, right? And it doesn't say only if he's not already married. Huh? And um, so if, folks, if we want to do like some people say, uh, read and do, I just cite that passage. Okay, we need massive reform. We've got to apply this literally. <laughs> no, it's you can't do that. Concern for the dead, concern for widows, other principles. Those are the principles we need to apply, but in different ways within our setting. Okay, see how that works? Yeah. And the reason why we have to include that, uh, that if the New Testament removes its application, circumcision, okay, was not just simply a ceremonial law under the sanctuary. We, we could still practice that as a ceremonial ritual, and Jewish people do, without an existing temple. But the New Testament removes that as a dividing between um, God's people. Okay? Is that it? Well, let's have a prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the way you have led us in the past, which shows us that we can truly trust in you and know that you're going to lead us through. Thank you that you're our creator. We believe that. You're, and as a result, you can be our redeemer. And I know that my redeemer lives, so it doesn't matter what happens to me. We can have courage. Yes, taking care of ourselves as the doctor has been telling us this week about, about health. But yet, we don't have to be afraid of what's going to happen because we're in your hands. We know that you're going to carry us through. We know that we're living after 1844 at the very end of time. During this judgment, and we cry out with David saying, Judge me, O God. See if there's any wicked way in, in, in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We don't have to be afraid because the one who judges is the one who saves, who gives us the Holy Spirit, and is so merciful. Why would you want to pay an infinite price for us and then throw us away? It wouldn't make sense. So we thank you that we can trust you. Thank you for this time of fellowship we have and for your word, which is so clear and plain, and yet so deep that we can keep on uh, digging for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.